You're listening to the Belfer Center's Office Hours. This episode... The intelligence community, the great men and women in it, will continue to tell truth to power even if the power chooses to ignore it. James Clapper, former director of national intelligence, on his book, Facts and Fears, defending the intelligence community and comic books. For more insightful conversations with experts from the Belfer Center and beyond, subscribe to Office Hours on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Here's host... Arup Mukherjee. Before we get into the substance of your book, and that the book, the new book is Facts and Fears, uh, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence uh, that just came out earlier this year. Um, now, you've, you've lived a life in intelligence away from the public eye, and there were, some, there were some details that came out in the book that I wanted to ask you about. In particular, I noticed you were a fan of comic books. <laughs> uh, were you more into the Sunday tunes, or were you more of a superhero? No, I was, uh, I think, probably more of a superhero, and uh, I had a uh, small collection of comic books, uh, Batman, Superman, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, So you're more of a DC fan. uh, Yeah, and so I had uh, accumulated these comic books, and I kept them in pristine condition, and I had them all arranged chronologically and all that sort of thing, and I wish I had them now. They'd be worth a fortune. Uh, <laughs> but uh, as luck would have it, my dad was a uh, first lieutenant in the Army, and you had uh, weight limits based on your rank. And so uh, my parents decided they couldn't afford the weight of the comic books I'd collected, so I had to give away the, my collection to Brady, the little girl who was about two years younger than I was, and... Uh, who later, years and years later, became a wife. And I, neither of us know what happened to the comic books. Yeah, you married her despite her losing yeah. the comic books. Despite her losing my comic book collection or losing track of it, I still married her. All right, well, let's let's move to the book, uh, or more of the substance of the book, uh, which has less to do with comic books uh, and more to do, as I said, it's called Facts and Fears, Hard Truths from a Life in Intelligence. Okay, what are the facts, what are the fears, and, and what are the hard truths? Well, the facts uh, were, as I recalled them, uh, and obviously they're always imperfect, so I think the facts had to do with our portrayal, and I have to give credit to my collaborator, Trey Brown, who was my speechwriter for the last three three years I was DNI. And so we tried to be as factual about the events and the, and the sequence of events and, and uh, that sort of thing. You know, there's all kinds of subjective things that find your way you find your way in to uh, a a portrayal like this it's it's biographical it's it's my memory of of some things which probably isn't perfect i know it wasn't so those are the facts i think uh, some of the fears come out in uh, particularly the later chapters in fact one of the reasons i wrote the book was uh, a major catalyst for it was the Russian interference in our election. I've seen a lot of bad things in my 50-plus years in intelligence, but never anything that disturbed me as much as the Russian interference and the profound threat that represents to our very system. So that certainly was a primary fear, which I still have. And as I say, one of the reasons I wrote the book was I felt that I needed to do my little part to try to educate the American public about uh, the threat posed by Russia. So that that's a fact and a fear. Hard truths? Well, one of the s- signal uh, writs of intelligence is truth to power. 
And it's uh, something that is, I think, fundamental to the profession of intelligence. It's, it's a mantra that I tried to practice. Uh, sometimes that got hard, particularly in the last uh, job. Um, so I, those are examples of facts and fears and hard truths. Do you, you know, because you mentioned that you, well, you tried to retire on a, on a, a bunch of times. Uh, from, well, I did retire <laughs> yeah, a bunch of times. Uh, uh, but, we're, but we're pulled back in and, and you had envisioned, as far as I understand it, a quiet retirement uh, after leaving uh, the post of uh, DNI, the, the Director of National Intelligence. Um, and you found yourself uh, in the public eye now. Um, what has that felt like? What has that change been like? Well, first, the first time I retired was 23 years ago when I retired from the Air Force. And my last job was Director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and I retired in the fall of 1995. I never thought about, never gave a thought to speaking up or speaking out or going on television or doing any of that. When I left uh, and I came back to the government uh, six years later and left that and retired, I thought that was my, as director of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, and I left that in 2006 thinking that was going to be my last government gig. But the last time I left was uh, in January of 2017, and I felt uh, very concerned about what was going on in the country, uh, the fact that uh, our institutions and values that I had spent a long time defending were under assault, notably the intelligence community itself. And so I started out simply uh, trying to defend the intelligence community against the characterization of being Nazis and that sort of thing. And I sort of backed into, uh, well, you know, being a, a, an outspoken uh, former. Now, this is not without controversy. Um, there are people in my two tribes, both military, retired military, and, and some retired intelligence officials who don't think I should be and others like me, like General Mike Hayden or John Brennan, that we should be speaking up and speaking out the way we are. It's a very personal decision. Uh, I certainly recognize the controversy, but I just decided I had a duty uh, to speak up because of the assaults on these institutions' values. Yeah, can we talk about that? So there is this, there is this culture uh, among former serving military officers and intel officers not to speak up or out against an administration. And to me, that's – I. while you are an intel or military officer or both, I, I guess I, I, I can understand that as a civilian, isn't it your duty, a civic duty to express your, um, you know, f- freedom of speech? How, how, how does that square with that? Well, that's, that's my view, obviously. That's yeah. – uh, uh, you know, that I'm uh, exercising my First Amendment rights for free speech. We all are. All, all, I'm not the only one in this in this category. But there are those who feel that we shouldn't, that we bring um, uh, disfavor, we, that we are politicizing the institutions that we used to be in, uh, which during which we try not to be political. 
And there's there's some validity to that. Uh, there is for that potential downside. I just decided in my case, I can only speak for me, that whatever downsides there were, were overcome by, I think, the importance of speaking up. Uh, has it been energizing to any extent? I mean, I know I, I read that uh, when you had were first appointed to be DNI by President Obama, you had said something like you cringed at seeing, you know, being on TV and, and seeing yourself in the papers. Now that that's happened so much, uh, is there an energy to this moment, um, an excitement to it to speak out, uh, to, to serve the country in a more public way? No, no, no. I wouldn't <laughs> say that. Uh, again, I just think it's... Uh it's uh, it's a duty. Uh, I just feel it's a, an obligation I have uh, to do. I don't know why that is. It's uh, it's just, it's just the way I feel. I don't I don't I don't find it exciting necessarily. Um, you know, as somebody who who has clearly rounded third base on the home run of life, and I had anticipated just kind of quietly dancing off stage, but I I just feel that the conditions and the situation in our country today is. Is quite different than it, it ever has been in my lifetime. If you had danced off stage, where exactly would you have danced to? What, did you have a place in mind? Same place we lived when I retired from the military. We've, we've been uh, living in Fairfax, Virginia, outside of Washington, and been in the same house for 23 years. So stay there. We've uh, we have a vacation place on the Outer Banks that uh, we anticipate spending a good <laughs> bit of time at. Uh, what 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 do you enjoy most about that vision? I like to sit on the beach and watch the ocean. I find it very soothing and reassuring because it's constant. <laughs> Doing nothing else, just watching it. Yeah, well, you know, I like to watch. Uh, it's a good place to people watch. That's the one time I uh, I can read a book. Yeah, uh, and just kind of chill out. Uh, I. I'm a bike rider, so it's a great place to ride a bike and things like that. Is that how you relax as well? Are those the, the sort of environments? I mean, you, you've been in such, in your career, you've had such intense moments. Um, where do you find a respite from? from well, all of I that? find a respite at home, and uh, I have to credit my wife uh, for that, creating it. Uh, and she's always done that. Uh, for We've been married now 53 years, and she's wherever we were. You know, we had 23 moves in 32 years in the Air Force, and uh, she always made the home and made that a safe haven uh, for me, and uh, it's still that way. I want to get back a little bit to your to this idea of duty and and speaking out against uh, the current moment. Of course, as you mentioned, the the I mean, a lot of the book is is about your career and and things you dealt with, and and then and then as you mentioned toward the the end of it, uh, there is a an expression of fear and concern about the current moment. What are the what are the ways in which society moves beyond this? Um, because it seems like th- there's a. It's not just Donald Trump who's creating this moment. Yeah. He's a product. He's he's not the only cause of. Oh, absolutely. Uh, uh, President Trump is just a manifestation of, of a larger uh, trend. Uh, the so-called populist trend, which is not is endemic, not just to the United States. It's all, it's in other countries as well, and it's just this. 
you know, resentment of, of conventional government and dissatisfaction with what governments are able to do for people. And I think his appeal, what President Trump was very astute to pick up on these resentments and frustrations and exploit them. Uh, he made people believe that he was one of them and that he was going to shake things up in Washington and drain the swamp and do all that sort of thing. It's all going to be different. And he, you know, he was a good market, marketeer. But he is not the cause or the origins of, uh, of this. The thing, the overarching thing that really bothers me, and I think Mike Hayden has been very eloquent in describing this, notably in his second book. By the way, anybody who writes more than one book, I really admire. Um, and that is the assault on truth and the specific manifestations of that are the assaults on institutions or endeavors which depend on or revolve around empirical fact. So I'm thinking about things like science, like academe, like journalism, enemy of the estate, like the intelligence community, or law enforcement. Just to name five examples of endeavors which ought to and should and do depend on truth, fact, reality. And what we're, what we're seeing now, what we're enduring is an assault on truth. And this is very, very dangerous, very insidious for our democracy or any. What people respond on, that, on the other side will say, well, truth is experienced differently uh, by different sides. Uh, you know, there, Rudy Giuliani said, you know, truth isn't truth, of course, the alternative facts yeah. universe that Kellyanne, Con Kellyanne Conway mentioned is there something that like you do you do subjectively experience the same reality and there are ways of spinning those same facts because it seems like we have camps of people who believe just different facts about yeah. the world and how do you get one people one group of people who see themselves as believing facts uh to say oh no 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 that is just a wrong reality well that's what's bad that's precisely what you described is uh, there there has to be uh, reality. There has to be fact. There are laws of physics. There are laws of nature. Uh, you know, this is true particularly in, in science. And historical events happen. They happen in a certain specific way. You, you know, you can argue about how people observe them and all that. But What's dangerous now is the number of people in our country who revel in wacko conspiracy theories that have absolutely no basis whatsoever in objective reality. They're not just not fact-based. They're made up. They're fictitious. They're imaginary. And they become, in the minds of these people, they, they become fact. And that's dangerous. Yeah, so how do we—how how does that— how is that how is that resolved? Um, 
Is it well, I don't, if I knew the answer to the question, <laughs> I, you know. Uh, Does it take more? I mean, do you feel that more military and intelligence folks folks should be speaking up and speaking out against this? Is it just take popular movements, civic, you know, the, it, it harkens to the McCarthy era, of course. Um, there well, are certain... w- w- exactly. And we've been through these kind of cycles uh, before. Uh, obviously, what we're experiencing right now is, you know, is, it's very bright. Uh, bright lights for us, but there's there have been historical episodes in our past where we've had similar uh, situations. I, you know, the the only debate that my collaborator Trey Brown and I had about the book, the only argument we ever had the whole year we wrote the book together, was how to end it. Mm. Uh, the last three pages, which are the, which are very passionate, which in which we and we had written a, a very dark version of projecting in the future. Then we wrote a happy face version. We didn't like either one of those. Our managing editor at the publisher uh, was helpful. He kind of intervened and refereed between the two of us. And what we ended up saying was simply that the United States has endured traumas in the past, notably the Civil War and the trauma that I lived through, which is Vietnam. And we uh, eventually emerged the stronger and the better for both experiences. And we just stopped the book, didn't make any projection. Do the the midterms, uh, has that changed or affected your uh, either optimism or pessimism uh, about the future? Well, it was a good thing. I think the outcome was a good thing because, uh, you know, the Republicans don't control both houses of Congress. So now there will be some, you know, we're supposed to have checks and balances in our system. We haven't had that for a couple of years. Now we probably will, just by virtue of the fact that the House of Representatives will be controlled by the Democrats. Maybe that's good. The downside of that is I predict relative paralysis in the Congress because I think it's going to be very difficult to, for both houses to ever agree on, on any major legislation. The House... Uh there's been rumblings of, you know, uh, investigations into Trump by House Democrats, and Trump has responded uh, quite aggressively that he would, he could fight fire with fire. What legal tools does he have at his disposal that he could use toward that? Well, not unlike uh, tools that we've seen him use, for example, threatening to take people's clearances away. there, There are a vast array of administrative tools and administrative authorities that the president could, could poten- conceivably use. Against members of <laughs> I'm Congress. I'm not sure how, but he could use them, I guess, against Democrats. I mean, he's threatened uh, counter-investigations uh, of them, for example, for leaks. I'm, I'm not sure you know, what that means, what that means to Democrats who are newly elected to the Congress who've never been in the government before. So I, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, so Trump, Trump is such an interesting character because he, he famously, as you mentioned, he compared uh, the intel community to Nazis. There has been all sorts of things he's said and disparaged uh, in, in the intel community. Um, as somebody who has spent a career at intel, people who did not pay attention, who just dismissed intel, what were those people like? Why did they do it? Uh, what was their motivation? For dismissing intelligence? Yeah. Well, first of all, I'm not suggesting necessarily that that, uh, President Trump dismisses it. I think uh, with 
perhaps the, the possible accession of Russia. I think he's, he embraces uh, uh, intelligence. He certainly did. My exposure was not, I wasn't personally involved, but when they were briefing him when he was a candidate. Uh, you know, he's interested, asked a lot of questions. It was, you know, his first exposure ever to any intelligence at all. Um, so I don't, I, I don't, it's not a fair characterization. So he, you know, he just rejects it out of hand. Now, historically, yeah, people have ignored intelligence. Um, they thought they knew better. They had what they thought were better sources of information. And that's, you know, that's a uh, prerogative the policymakers have. You know, the intelligence is there to support them. They don't have to like it. They don't have to agree with it. Uh, and they have the option of ignoring it. I, I think policymaker does that at his or her peril uh, if you do that over extended period. You, you've talked about a worry about being a politis- politicizing intelligence. Is the moment that we're in now, is it any different or any worse than previous moments? Because we, politicization of intelligence has happened for a long time. Um, yeah, if that's, this is not, the, the specter of politicization is not new. Um, and that's why one of the mantras, key mantras of, in, of intelligence, a hallmark uh, of intelligence is telling truth to power. And... It's my belief right now that the intelligence community, the great men and women in it, will continue to tell truth to power even if the power chooses to ignore it. There's another interesting section in the book where you talk about opening up the intel community to uh, the uh, LGBTQ community. Um, And I think for many people, that that socially progressive story um, doesn't square with the popular conception of the military and intelligence communities. And is there a story there that you, because you're so proud of that, of that, um, and you celebrate Mike Mullen uh, and his comment in, uh, mm-hmm. in testimony about, um, about uh, that he regretted, uh, that didn't like, um, don't ask, don't tell. Is there another story to the, there to the military that the American public uh, just doesn't know? Well, I think the the great story, and for the military particularly, when they uh, allowed uh, people to be open about their sexual preferences, for example, uh, was a tremendously liberating thing for them. I I can't imagine uh, living uh, every day under the uh, as a military person uh, under the fear that you could be out at any time i can't imagine what that was like and you had to hide that dimension of your life and the fact that we were penalizing people that way as mike mullen so eloquently said in his remarks uh, in congress and from an intelligence perspective the more different perspectives that you can bring to bear uh, the more different backgrounds, the better you are. If everybody looked alike and thought alike in the intelligence community, that 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 is not good. That is uh, a, in my view, marginalized intelligence community. So for for me, it's a question of not not only you know what doing what's right here, but it's a mission imperative. Uh, uh, to have as much variety and diversity of view as you can 
The intelligence community, you could argue, many people say, oh, it should look like America. Well, I could argue that it ought to look like the world because that's what we're looking at. So it's 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 that it's that uh, a stronger intel community is also a more socially progressive one. Or sorry, excuse me, I should say, a, a more socially progressive intel community is a stronger intel community, one that values different perspectives and balances them. That's my belief. Uh, Russia also features uh, quite prominently in the book, um, and you talk about the meddling in the 2016 election. Um, and you said on the last page, to be clear, the Russians are our primary existential threat. What do you say to people who say, well, you know, we're not in the Cold War anymore. You know, Russia, Russia isn't what it used to be. And we've got to worry about China. I mean, they hacked the, the Romney campaign in 2012. And, uh, and there was the big OPM hack in 2015. Why isn't China uh, a concern? It is. Uh, what I have said, just to be clear, is I felt, I've said this many times publicly, that I believe in the short term, Russia is our greatest threat. And by short term, I mean as long as Putin's around. Putin has a very strong animus towards this country and everything we stand for. And as long as he's around, that's going to continue. The other thing we don't pay a lot of attention to, particularly with respect to Russia, is they're a very aggressive uh, military modernization program, uh, particularly among their, their strategic nuclear arsenal. You may have seen uh, the video uh, of uh, Putin on the 1st of March, in which he was uh, describing uh, a series of five strategic weapons, uh, hypersonic glide vehicles, the so-called weapons of vengeance, which is a nuclear-powered torpedo with a nuclear warhead designed to do one thing, which is to destroy our ports and coastal cities and kill as many American citizens as possible. And in this uh, included a video animation of a missile apparently headed right for Mar-a-Lago. So the Russians do all this, modernize their strategic nuclear forces, design new weapons, with one adversary in mind, that is the United States of America. Now, the long-term outlook in Russia is not good. Uh, their economy being so heavily dependent on, you know, digging things out of the ground like oil. And, of course, the, as the price goes up and down, so does their economy. They have a, a demographic challenge with a declining population. Population is aging. Life expectancy is declining. They have the uh, worst life expectancy rate for, for males of any industrialized country in the world. HIV, AIDS, huge problem. They have all kinds of infrastructure and environmental challenges. So the long-term outlook for, for Russia is not good. So the long-term threat for us clearly is China. One, because of their economic prowess, their economic power, and they are going to overtake us as the world's largest economy. It's just a question of time and their scientific and technical prowess. Uh, they're very good in getting better. And they, too, have embarked on a very aggressive military modernization program, which they've keyed to what they consider to be our strengths. So long-term, yes, China is, I, I believe, our, our greatest threat. You know, some would argue that uh, China's behavior is tempered somewhat by the fact that our two economies are inextricably bound. 
U.S. and China could do all kinds of bad things to each other, but we don't because, because of that recognition of that fact. This is unlike Russia, where the two economies are essentially mutually exclusive. Do you, does your mind ever go back to, to October uh, 2016 and wonder whether or not you could have done something differently, uh, maybe even before October? Um, how tough was that decision? Well, we did do something in October. Uh, we put out, we, uh, then Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson, and I put out a, a statement together, which was designed to be a warning to the American people and the American electorate about what the Russians were doing and the fact that it was a pretty, I thought, forthright statement. And it, it made the point that uh, this effort to meddle in our elections would be directed at the highest levels of the Russian government, meaning Vladimir Putin. Our sense of timing was bad because that was the same day that the Access Hollywood audio tape came out and there were some emails dumped at the same time. So our message to the American people got lost. What kind of tempered, uh, moderated what the Obama administration did, I think, was, mo was a, a couple factors that, were, that played. One was uh, if we had hyped what the Russians were doing, we would perhaps somehow magnify even more uh, its importance. And I think, too, uh, President Obama was, was very reticent about putting his hand on the scale for one candidate against and to the favor of one candidate and to the disfavor of the other against the backdrop of candidate Trump alleging that the election would be rigged. And I don't think President Obama wanted to play to that narrative. So that, to a certain extent, constrained what we did. I thought the sanctions uh, and other actions that were taken uh, in uh, December 29th were appropriate. I was a big supporter of them, which we could have done more. But I, my bigger concern was we should have taken that action before the election, not after. That's obviously a personal opinion, not certainly not company policy at the time. Well, Jim, thank you so much again for joining. Uh, the book, again, is called Facts and Fears, Hard Truths uh, from a Life in Intelligence uh, by General uh, James Clapper. Thanks very much for having me. Office Hours was produced by the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government.